Hey everyone, welcome to the Low Level Hell Podcast. I'm Brian, with me today is Barrett, and I think we got a pretty interesting guest lined up today. I think it was a fascinating story, at least from my standpoint. What would you think, Barrett? Yeah, as I listened to it, I mean, that guy had a super interesting career, and it just reminded me of, you know, the maxim that goes, uh, if you don't get what you want, just keep trying, and eventually you'll get what you want. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we'll definitely get into that here in a few minutes, but uh, it would be remiss not to mention that today is the 17th of January, 2021. Of course, a few days, uh, about a week or so prior to this actually getting published. But uh, 30 years ago today, I guess the air war for Desert Storm started. Uh, I think I was in the seventh grade and you were probably, what, turning 50 at the time? (laughs) No, I was a snot-nosed sophomore in college. Oh, okay. Air Force ROTC, actually. Oh, okay. Right but on. that didn't pan out for me. Yeah, I was going to say, how'd that work <laughs> out for you? Um, but yeah, so what it's interesting about Desert Storm, you know, we were kind of talking right beforehand, is a, a, really an unveiling of, of technology in a lot of different ways. But what is particularly interesting to me uh, as it relates to this show is how that all started. So a lot of people don't know this, but, you know, of course, we did the air war, which I think was 40 some odd days or something prior to the ground war kicking off. But uh, you know, a lot of people thought it started with jets, but it actually started with helicopters. Uh, so I was watching something actually the other day about this. The first shots fired in Desert Storm were actually from the Air Force. They were cruise missiles that were launched from, I think, B-52s. Uh, but the first rounds that actually shot and impacted targets were Army Hellfire missiles fired from Apaches uh, and a little something called Task Force Normandy. And so uh, basically the the story as it goes is, you know, you had alpha model Apaches, so older aircraft. And, you know, back then not everybody had GPS the way we do now. And they had basically an inertial navigation system. But the distance that they were traveling, you know, the INS drifts, I I don't know, even now it still drifts. What is it, like every 20 some odd miles or you're supposed to update it? I don't remember. Well, that's the beauty of of EGI, embedded, uh, what's it stand for? Embedded GPS inertial system. So the GPS updates the INS periodically. Right. So you don't need to do INS. Yeah. Um, but if you flew in pure INS yeah. mode, you would have to update it off of a known point or, or something like that. Yep. This was um, pre, yeah, we'll get into it. I'm sure. But desert storm was like the proof in the pudding mm-hmm. of so much technology that the U S had been bringing to bear in the, through the eighties, like Saddam picked the absolute worst time to mess with anybody, especially the the U.S., because, you know, the Soviet Union was failing and Reagan's army uh, was basically looking around going, well, what do we do now? (laughs) And it was the height of uh, arguably the height of the U.S.'s military power right at that moment. Well, and back then Iraq was no slouch either. So I I do recall they had, I think, the the world's most uh, lethal integrated air defense network in the world. Cause you know, they'd been at war for gosh, eight, eight years or so yeah. I think, with, with Iran at that point. So they were no slouch either. Uh, and they had a pretty intense system, but that kind of goes back to Normandy. So uh, you had these aircraft that you know, they needed to go this, this long distance and engage these two um, early warning uh, locations. 
And uh, the problem is, of course, the Apaches couldn't get there reliably because of the INS and the problems that we just discussed. So they paired them up with some MH-53s, which were special operations Air Force aircraft that did have GPS, because, again, this was kind of a newer thing and, you know, they had the brand new stuff. So these uh, Pavehawks, or I'm sorry, these Pavelos were, were guiding the Apaches to their target area. And I read that uh, they actually threw out chem lights. That's how they marked uh, the known point. So they would get a good GPS fix on a grid. They would hover over it. The crew chief would throw out a whole bunch of like a like a wad of of chem lights. The Apache would then know that okay, that particular light is grid one two three four five six seven eight. Yeah. And then they would update their INS based on that, and they and they would continue on this route. And I think it was uh, seventy miles into Iraq, uh, they had to travel, you know, plus however far they had to go before that, and then uh, then split and go to these two different target areas, identify them, and then engage them at the same time because you know they, if they engage one and the, not the other, then then word would get out and all this stuff. So they had to engage them simultaneously, and then it it opened up a I think a twenty mile wide corridor into iraq and that is when all these air force aircraft and navy aircraft and everything just kind of flew in there and started started pounding stuff yeah they were taking down the early warning radars or the air defense radars to punch a hole through the integrated air defense network to allow everybody else to flow through right yeah yeah which which you know you had hundreds of aircraft basically circling to the south kind of outside of radar range that you know not to give away that something was going to happen tonight so it was Really fascinating and um, looking to get some guests on in the future. I've got some uh, friend of a friend talking to some other friends who were on that mission and trying to get some, some people on the show. So hopefully here in the soon, uh, in the near future, we can we can have a conversation about it and get the get the deets. But, um, but yeah, speaking of details and interesting careers. So we've got our guest here who served in not one, not two, not three, but four branches of the. United States military and, and even still kind of has an interesting career. So we're going to spend some time talking to him and I hope you guys enjoy it and we'll see you on the other side. Yeah, he's got a great story. Y'all. It'll be fun. All right. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, you know, I've been struggling with a way to, to introduce you, but I, I guess I could really just say if there's ever a guy who can probably explain the differences in, in culture and community between all the branches, it's, it's you. So you know, Dorellis is with us and you've served what as a Marine, as a sailor, as a soldier and as an airman. Am I that is right? correct. Everything but the Coast Guard and now the Space Force. Yeah, well, yeah I guess that's true. We should, you you got to get guardian now, I guess, is the word. You got to put that on your resume somehow. But um, okay. uh, they don't have helicopters, so probably not. Space. Yeah. Space helicopters coming soon. Um, OK, well. Tell us, I mean, a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and kind of, kind of walk the dog on a on a crazy career like that. Yeah, I've, uh, I like to say I've had an interesting and highly undistinguished military career. So I was uh, born and raised in New York, in the city in Manhattan. Um, grew up with a single mom. My dad passed away when I was six, and kind of had the typical single mom working, single mom upbringing. You know, she was working two jobs, and I was basically kind of being a, an idiot. Uh, I grew up, I, I, you know, I don't know when the bug bit, but I just was always fascinated with the military and, and, and being a pilot airplanes Mm -hmm. from a very early age. I don't come from a military family. I mean, my, my mom's brothers all served in world war two. Uh, my, uh, cousin served in Vietnam, but, um, I don't come from a military family. Everybody, everybody did their thing and, and, 
and bolted. Um, but I was just fascinated with it. And, um, you know, she hoped I would grow out of it. Uh, she being a typical Jewish mom, I think wanted a doctor or a lawyer, but, uh, I made it pretty clear from an early age that I had zero interest in anything like that. And, uh, just was fascinated with it. I mean, you know, with the miracle of social media, as I reconnect with guys I knew in high school and elementary school and junior high, you know, they comment on how, you know, I was drawing airplanes and, uh, hmm. you know, uh, epic air battles in the middle of math class and, and on my notebook, you know, with zeros and Mustangs and P-38s. And I knew every World War II airplane by the time I was like nine or ten. So I, I don't, I mean, it's just, I can't explain why, you know, you, you talk to guys who are SEALs or Rangers or whatever, and they're like, so all I ever wanted to do. Well, that's kind of how I was. And then I, I got fascinated with the Marine Corps. I probably like, honestly, I think from seeing the movie, The Sands of Iwo Jima, as cliche as that sounds. Hmm. And uh, just, that's it. I wanted to be a Marine aviator. And uh, so uh, when I got to college, uh, my initial foray to college was was really was a joke. Actually, I went to Embry Riddle, <laughs> begged, borrowed, and steal the money in Daytona Beach, which was a horrible, horrible mistake. I I I spent most of the time on the beach. I did manage to get about forty hours of flight time, but I also had like a one point eight GPA. You know, I think <laughs> I had an Animal House GPA. So obviously, I wasn't going to be able to continue there. I, you know my. You know, no one had the money for me to do it, and I wasn't going to borrow it. You know, I, I realized that wasn't a good idea, so I, I took a year off of college and worked with my brother. He was a commodities trader, so I was a clerk down there with him and uh, tried to figure out what I was going to do. Went back to City John Jay College, which is part of the city university system, started getting decent grades there, and then applied for the Marine Officer Program. Got rejected the first time. Uh, Colonel took me aside and said, you don't present like an officer. You present like a guy hanging out on the corner. He happened to be mm -hmm. a guy used to hang out on the corner, Mustang, you know, had been an enlisted guy and mm -hmm. became an officer. And he's like, listen, right now you wouldn't pass the interview. He goes, come back in a year, you know, learn how to present yourself, learn how to dress for an interview, learn how to, and I, so I took everything he said to heart and I, mm -hmm. I kind of changed from being a little bit of a street guy, uh, to trying to present myself as a guy who could possibly be an officer in the military. And then yeah. kept it in the program a year later, then made my first of many mistakes in the military. I chose to go to OCS. Marine Corps offers something called a platoon leaders class program, and you can do either one 10-week OCS summer, you're between your senior and junior year, or you can do two six-week summers uh, between your uh, sophomore, junior year and your uh, junior, senior year. Uh, that's a very bad mistake. So if anyone out there is thinking of being a Marine officer and going PLC, don't do the two summers. I did it because I thought I could salvage a little bit of my summer at the back end. But uh, it's basically like going to Marine boot camp twice. And OCS is pretty challenging. Uh, you talk to former enlisted Marines, I think they tell you physically it's a lot more challenging, uh, maybe not as challenging mentally. Although back then they could still put their hands on you a little bit and they made use of some different motivational techniques. But, uh, yeah, it was a bad idea to have to do that twice because it was very difficult to go back the second time. I mean, the day before I was uh, 
on my friend's bike, we, you know, on his motorbike, we're riding around the city. And I remember he stopped at a light. And I remember just leaning over and throwing up because I was so freaked out about having to go back. But I, I couldn't. Yeah, because at this point, you're already, you already know what to expect and you're dreading and, it. And the reality is, is I had talked so much <laughs> about being a Marine that I couldn't quit. You right. know, and, and I, a lot of, you know, look, I was not a disciplined guy growing up. I was a bit of a troublemaker. I wasn't, I was your average guy physically. I was a decent athlete. I was in decent shape, but I wasn't an impressive individual. So, um, so many people didn't think I had a shot of becoming a Marine, let alone an officer. So, cause you could quit, you know, you didn't have to go through with the program, but I didn't. And I subsequently graduated and got my commission in the Marine Corps in 84. And in September of 84, I went to TBS, which were all new Marine lieutenants go to down at Quantico, the basic school. You know, it's a six month course, basically on small unit tactics, you know, and all the ins and outs of being an officer. And, uh, you know, but, but it basically concentrates on, you know, you leading a platoon and, you operate as a platoon and everybody, all the lieutenants get uh, leadership roles during the course of the six months. And um, about, I don't know, two thirds of the way through, they called us into the auditorium there, O'Bannon Hall. And I'm paraphrasing, but they're like, hey, all you guys want to be pilots kind of sucks to be you. We have too many pilots at both ends of the pipeline. So all of you on an air contract, it's going to be 18 to 24 months till you get to flight school. Wow. Here are some options. Uh, if you drop your air contract, we'll give you any MOS you want, regardless of your standing in the class. If you don't, you can fill out a dream sheet. We'll stick you where we need you for 18 to 24 months. Mm-hmm. I chose that option and had orders to the 7th Truck Battalion, Camp Pendleton, California. Oh. Be a motor transport officer for 24 months. Needless to say, I was I was I was a little depressed, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my plans weren't working out the way I had hoped. But um, yeah. One of my fellow lieutenants, his dad was an admiral in uh, in the Navy and naval aviation. And as you know, all naval aviation, Marine Coast Guard Navy is all naval aviation. So he walked over to his Marine counterpart and asked what was going on. <clears throat> they said, "Hey, man, this is what's going on." He said, "Well, hey, man, we're kind of short." Mm-hmm. Uh. Uh, is there any way you think some of these guys would want to come over and, to the Navy? You know, and, and the Marine Corps being the Marine Corps, and it was like, you may get a couple of guys. So that a, a few weeks later, a bunch of Navy 06s show up and kind of say, hey, look, you know, we're hurting for pilots this year. If any of you guys want inter-service transfer, the ensigns in the Navy, you'll get to flight school, you know, pretty quick. And um, anyone who's interested will take you down for Pensacola to flight physicals this weekend. So that was that that was where they 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 were master salesmen because like guys like me, I drank the Marine Corps Kool-Aid. I love, you know, I was all about being a Marine. But, you know, they take us down to Pensacola for the weekend. We all get flight physicals. We pass and then we're let loose in Pensacola. And, <laughs> I, I, you know, I know as an Army aviator, I'm sure you've driven down to Pensacola, Panama yeah. City and all those places from Rucker. So, you know. Yeah. You know, I'm single yeah. and I'm like, wait, I can get here now. Right. So, or be a truck guy. Right. So yeah. um, <laughs> about 150 of us in a service transferred over to the Navy. Um, wow. A couple of months doing, pay, you know, the paperwork took a couple of months. 
We all got interesting second lieutenant jobs in the Marine Corps, which actually were really good leadership stuff. You know, sure. uh, a headquarters platoon, and I had all the guys, the blind, crippled, crazy, the guys awaiting court martial. Like guys would try to salute me with their left hand. You know, just it was a good, yeah. good, it's a good place for a two LT. You know what I mean? Sure. I had an education. I learned how to kind of be be an officer without being an ass. You know, being Phil Marshall Rommel. You know what I mean? Right. So I, it was good. And then one day, uh, you know, they handed me a DD-214 from the Marine Corps. I sidestepped, literally took one sidestep over and sworn as an ensign in the Navy. And a week later, I was in, in Pensacola. That's crazy. You know, for one, it sounds like the Marines really uh, underestimated how bad their guys wanted to be pilots and overestimated how much they just wanted to be Marines. You said 150 guys. Well, yeah, we got and and um, there's yeah, and there's an interesting story to that. So. uh so you're set up as platoons. I was in hotel company, right? And so you're set up in these four platoons and the, the platoon commander is a Marine captain, right? And, and in our case, we had two aviators and two infantry guys as the platoon commander. So they, hmm. they, they all wanted a chance to talk to us about this, right? So the one infantry guy comes in. He's a Mustang. He looks like there's nothing in the world he could ever be than a Marine infantry officer. You know, he looks like one step above a Cro-Magnon man. You know, he's about five, eight His, you know, you know, the Marines like to roll up the sleeves and he's got his biceps are huge. He's got a square yeah. jaw. He looks, he looks like a human version of a silverback gorilla, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and he's, he's like, rock. like, uh, I'd rather dig ditches in the Marine Corps and fly jets in the Navy. And if any of you guys take this deal, you're traitors. And he walks out, right? Wow. wow. The Marine officer, he's a much more reasonable guy, the infantry guy. He's a really nice guy. He's like, you guys got to do what you got to do. I get it. You know, good luck. Whatever you do, I support it. You know, I, I know, you know, so many of you have your heart set on flying. And, you know, you're all Marines. You've, there's nothing you're going to do anymore in the Marine Corps. And you would have gone to flight school. You got nothing to be ashamed of. Good luck. And right. and then the two the two aviators came in together, which was odd. And they're they they were both said it's very simple. They said we'll deny this in public, but if you guys don't take this deal, you're stupid. And they walked out. <laughs> you know, they were both helo pilots, and um, and and they and they were like, yeah, we'll deny that we ever said this, but sure. but uh, yeah. and and that was that. And um, yeah, so. Uh, it was a tough decision. You know, I, I was really into being a Marine. I mean, I, I wasn't super motivated. Like I didn't wear like a Marine Corps belt buckle when I went out in town or anything like, but I really, it was a challenge. a big anchor tattoo or anything? No, no. I, you know, I'm actually, I'm probably going to get one of those now that I'm late in life, you know, but I'm going right, to yeah. kind of plan <laughs> a tattoo sort of that encompasses my sort of career, but but no, but I, I did. The Marine Corps was really important to me. Like I, I was that cliche guy who really needed, it. you know, the Marine Corps really, mo the Marine Corps really was, was transformative for me from kind of an asshole, right. mature, spoiled, indulged person as someone who could actually be an officer. And, and I started understanding things greater than yourselves and kind of all those cliche things. And yeah, it was a catalyst for change for you to yeah, kind of mature and grow up and, and make something. As cliche as it sounds, I I was the stereotypical guy. I needed it, and and so I was really yeah. I was really exploring that. Going, man, what did this Marine Corps thing, this leadership thing, this this is really something mm. big, 
you know, in my mind. Yeah. So leaving was a hard decision, but I was really frightened that I wouldn't get to flight school, you know, and, and I, yeah. I, that, you know, I kind of fear kind of drove that decision. Yeah. And, you know, so what, what did you want to do? Like if you had been able to stay and fly in the Marines, I mean, was there something in particular that you're interested in or it didn't matter? You just wanted to fly? I, I, I kind of had some ideas. Like I kind of wanted to fly the OV-10. You know, this is 84. They were still rocking mm, OV-10 yeah. back then. You know what I mean? Yeah, um, or helicopters. Um, I really never had the itch to be a fighter guy. And then honestly, the first few flights in flight school, I got pretty sick. You know, mm. when he was yanking and banking and throwing it around. And I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think I'm a fighter guy. You know, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? and it looks so, good on TV, but when you start doing it in real life, it's not so I, great. <laughs> Right. So um, I, I kind of gravitated towards helos. Actually, when I when kind came time to put my dream sheet, I put helos, helos, helos. I didn't even put anything else, you know. Um, and in those days, if you picked helos, you'd probably get it because everybody want to be a fighter pilot. You know, I, I mean, we had a guy quit flight school because he didn't get fighters, which I think is the dumbest thing in the world. But he did. Wow. Um, yeah. So, well, Top Gun was pretty new, I think, back then, too. Right? Uh, so I, everyone Top, Gun, Top Gun came out about two months. Uh, I had had my wings. Like, it came out right before I got my wings. So if for a single guy, the time, it couldn't have been better. Mm. But that's a whole other story. But, <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, yeah. but um, you know, so – but I, I was really, like, in the OV-10 and the helicopters. And honestly, in the Navy, I flew 53Es, which is probably what I would have – ended up picking in the Marine Corps anyway, you know? So mm-hmm. in that regard, I, I don't think I did much different than I would have in the Marine Corps, you know, uh, got to, you know, is it flew off of ships. I was stationed. I, I made it through Pensacola despite my best efforts to get in trouble down there. Um, and, uh, ended up getting, uh, 53 echoes and, uh, getting stationed in the Philippines as my first duty station. So hmm. uh, that that was also a lot of fun. Thank you, taxpayers. Yeah, also terrible for single. Yeah, thank you, taxpayers. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and I was there single for about a, a close to a year, and then I came home, got married, and brought my wife over there. And she was a Navy hmm. brat and had lived in Africa, so she had no trouble adjusting there. You know, a lot of wives. Did, you know, it's kind of a third world place, and they had some issues with it. And I, she sure. was all about it. I was like, you know, my when I first left New York, uh, when I joined the military, I learned early on, look, if I compare everything to New York, I'll be miserable wherever I'm at. Right. Decided to yeah. small town, big town, wherever, to just kind of embrace it and say, hey, this is an adventure. You know, I'm getting a do. Yeah. do. So I kind of had a good attitude. So, yeah, we lived in the Philippines for almost three years. I loved it. Uh, a lot of cool stuff, a lot of cool flying. Uh, came back, was in Norfolk for a little while. And then, uh, I don't know, you know, maybe having a kid, having family. I, I thought maybe I wanted to go to the corporate world. So I made the decision to get out of the Navy. I was a really stupid decision. About a week into my corporate job, I had a job with Airborne Express as a management guy. I realized I'd made a stupid mistake. And of course, I asked if I can go back in the Navy, and of course, they gave me the one finger salute. Hmm. And uh, you know, they were drawn. How out many years? Gulf War. Yeah, how many years in the Navy? Seven, a little over seven. Just enough, you know, enough to. 
just to fulfill my right. flight school obligation, which at the time was, I think, six and a half years. It's before they got crazy okay. with the 10 year obligation, you know? Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and I thought I wanted to do something different. And, you know, I deployed a couple of times in the Navy at sea. You know, we were lucky because being 53Es, a lot of times we didn't do six month deployments. We deployed two weeks here, a month there, 90. I think my longest deployment was like 90 days. So that was kind of oh, cool. Wow. I, I didn't spend a huge amount of time at sea, which I'm not really that upset about. Right. Uh, you know, like all other aviators, I called the boat the boat. And, you know, you slept, you know, the idea was sleep as much as you can on the boat because then your deployment will be shorter. You know, if you right. sleep hours a day, then your deployment's only three months or a month and yeah. a half. You know, so, so and we didn't have a lot of other stuff to do like this. You know, the real naval officers, they work pretty hard. You know, the yeah. pilots, we just like pretty much laugh. We watched movies and ate popcorn and worked out and laughed at how hard they had to work. Of course, we had a few motivated guys who got their ship quals and stuff. And I was would pretty much make fun of those guys and be like, what? You know, a couple of dedicated naval officers who wanted to be real naval officers, you know, and, and I had respect yeah. for them. Back then, I was like, why would you do something like that? I'd rather yeah. just sit in the ward These room. future carrier commanders and stuff. Right. I was like, I'd rather just sit in the ward room and watch a movie. But, um, So, you know, I, it, it was great. You know, I, I, I mean, flying, flying at sea, I learned, you know, uh, really good flying. I mean, I, I you know, I, I'm sure you may argue everybody, uh, you know, I, I think the Navy does an excellent job of training pilots. You know, I, I, they, their program is designed for a guy who's never seen an airplane before. And um, I think they do a great job. Um, I enjoyed the mission. Uh, I, I got really, really scared many, many times out there at night. It, this is pre-goggles, you know, out at, out at sea at night trying to land on a boat. Fuel's an issue. You know, a couple of times I'm like, man, I'm going to die out here in the middle of the ocean and no one's ever going to know. You know, I mean, but it was great. I, and the 53E was an amazing aircraft. You know, a little bit of a maintenance hog, but just an amazing, amazing aircraft. Fast, maneuverable, just, you know, definitely a manly aircraft. You know, I, I you know, whenever Chinook guys talk, I love to just crush them. You know, <laughs> with the, you know, with like, they're like, we're this powerful. And I'm like, we could lift a Chinook. You know, so, yeah, you know, yeah, they're so I'd never seen one up close until I deployed the first time. And we had I was a Kiowa guy and we were in uh, Kuwait getting ready to go north and we would have to walk, you know, forever down this flight line. And there were some CH-53s parked down there. And I knew they were big. But until you see one in person, you know, you have no concept of how big that thing is. 73.5, I believe, is max gross weight, at least the ones I flew. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they've changed a little now with all the new gear and stuff. But. Back then it was 73.5 was max gross weight. And we could take, I think, 20, almost 20,000 pounds of external cargo. And I think uh, empty with a full bag of gas, we were 55,000 pounds. So, you know, 18,000 pounds. I, I did, a, you know, I think the highlight of my Navy career was actually uh, hurricane relief and Hurricane Hugo in Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. We went down there for about a month and a half, two months and, I mean, talk about making use of the aircraft and its versatility. We did external loads, internal loads, everything you can imagine, people, 
medical supplies. It was just it was amazing. It really was. And mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you learn that if you fly an aircraft every day, you don't have maintenance problems. You know, when right. you need yeah. to fly it every day and get it out there, that's when they work like a charm. It's when they sit on the flight line for two, three days is when problems happen. But, uh, yeah, it seems to be that way for all military equipment. Yeah, if you don't no, use yeah. it, it breaks. But uh, it, it was really good. I, I enjoyed it, you know, and I'm, I'm proud to say I was a naval aviator. And uh, just I thought I wanted to get out. It just was a bad idea. And uh, I was working back in New York, and I missed flying, so I just shotgunned my paperwork to every guard, reserve unit, air guard, army guard, mm -hmm. naval reserve, everything. And the army guard came through first. and. I flew Hueys in the Army Guard. I became a warrant officer, which is probably the best rank in the military. You know, <laughs> yeah. you know, and uh, was a W two in a guard unit, <clears throat> flying Hueys, which were going out the door, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, uh, most of the senior W threes and fours. This was they hadn't come up with five yet. Uh, mm -hmm. They had all flown to Vietnam. They were cops and firemen and lawyers and doctors and civilian life. And I, I don't think we ever did a lick of hard work. I mean, we would come in, brief the, the drills. You'd come in, you'd brief the lieutenant, would brief this. Yeah, I need you guys to go out here and do this training, blah, blah, blah. And he'd walk out and then the W3 would go, yeah, okay, hey, that, we're not doing that. We're flying down to Atlantic City. We're going to have some lunch. We're going to Chinese yeah. joint. And then we'll do this. And every now and then we had a mission like we'd support West Point or something. But most of the time it was like a flying club. It was just fun and just listening to stories from these guys and just learning to fly from these guys. And, and really I learned a lot about flying just for some really good experienced pilots. And um, yeah. we just had these great stories and just it was a lot of fun. I still, you know, two, I'm really good friends with two or three guys, you know, guy I was W2 with now, he's a W5 in the unit. He's a lieutenant in the fire department in New York. And, um, I mean, mm -hmm. he's a really good friend. We've stayed friends forever. And, I mean, but we just had a good time. I, I really enjoyed it. And it was good for me because I was hating life. So it was just that was my sanity. And I would fly like, you know, and I don't know how familiar you are with the Guard or Reserve, but obviously you can fly additional flight training periods. So I tried to fly twice a week mm -hmm. in Hmm. So I managed to get a decent amount of flight. And there were guys who were just guard bumps. They didn't even have a job. They just flew right. in, come on orders for 30 days. One guy's wife was a teacher, so he had medical benefits through her. So he used to come on orders for 30 days, take a week off, come back on orders. You know, so it was, a, it was kind of a scam of the century, if I'm honest. It was, <laughs> it was great. So and when it, they brought you on... With, I mean, did you just basically walk in the door? Uh, you know, you were a former Navy, I'm assuming, 03 at this point, And they just they just pin you on W-2 and, and then, what, send you to Huey School or something? Yeah, you get appointed a warrant officer. You get appointed a warrant officer yeah. by the state. And then I had to go to the Huey course at the uh, Eastern, Ar at EATS, Eastern Army Aviation Training yeah. Site. And, Pennsylvania, and I think. I was there for like a month learning to fly to Huey, learning the Army way of doing things. You know, that's where I learned don't ever show up at a place going, well, this is what we used to do because they don't give a shit. They're going to kick you in the jimmy. Right. Yeah. Humbled, and I got a little yeah. humbled there. And uh, But, uh, yeah, I made it through. Uh, 
flying an old school Huey, which is just, you know, that's a blessing to me to get to fly a classic like that. Yeah, you know? yeah absolutely. Great helicopter. And uh, again, it was a good deal. And then I, I did that for about four years. And then uh, an opportunity to get in the Air Guard came along. And I knew some guys in the Air Guard unit. And so I put in a package, uh, was accepted, and uh, got, you know, basically got in the Air Guard again, Got was a captain again, was, you know, an 03 again, appointed a captain in the Air Guard and, and was there for about a year. They, they were doing some in-house. They, they, they were trying to train me in the 60 in-house because they didn't have a schoolhouse slot. And one of the cool things there was they said, we can send you to Rucker for a systems only in the 860. Right. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll, they, so I went down to Rucker. I didn't fly. I just did the system stuff down there with the DAC guys. Right. Right. Yeah. Honestly, the, the Department of Army civilians. Yeah. That was one of the best courses. That's where I learned, like, the Army really has this shit down. Yeah. So I was they, they set it up. So all I did was go to the academics. Right. So mm-hmm. in the morning, I'd be with this class of guys. And then they go to the flight line in the afternoon, and then I go to another class with the guys who just got back who were on the flight line in the morning. And we did mm-hmm. all the systems classes. And, you know, the Army teaches it. I'm a dummy, so I love it. You know, I'm a history major. I'm not a science, science guy, you know. So they were like, yeah. this is a drop of oil. It goes from the oil tank to the pump, to the cooler, to the, you know. And yeah, I, very I love, that's how a knucklehead like me retains stuff. So that w- I was down there for like – Three weeks, and I, honestly, that, I, that was probably the best military course I ever went to. Yeah, I was the same way. I was a I was a history major too. So going through flight school, like you know, I'm the kind of guy like I I, I can't change the oil in my car, but going through the the systems classes and stuff, and like here's an engine, and this is all the components, and this is how it works. It's like I'm never gonna have to work on this thing, but now I understand it. No, I I mean I came away going, you know, Rutgers a, a really cool place. You know, I mean. Yeah. You know, maybe enterprise isn't a great place to live or whatever, although I didn't mind the time. But I mean, the, yeah. the, the, the way they teach the course was really impressive to me, especially because, uh, you know, in the Air Force students, there were all like engineers and stuff, you know, and, and right. uh, it was, so that was kind of, you know, before the, that was before the Air Force, you know, started training on their own. And, and so it was it was just really cool for me and I, I enjoyed it. And then I went back up and. Two weeks later, they're like, hey, we got a slot at the schoolhouse. Do you want to go? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I'll take it. And I went to Kirtland Air Force Base in New Mexico in Albuquerque, and uh, they crammed uh, two months of learning to fly the 60 into about six months. And uh, <laughs> um, I learned to fly. And then um, one day – you know, when you're in the class with active duty, it's guard, reserve, all guys, a couple of active duty guys are like, oh, the assignments guys here. And they're just talking. They're like, you know, the Air Force is really short, short pilots because we didn't. There was like a two year period where they didn't train any helicopter pilots. You, you know how the military does stuff like I mean, you all see right. what's going on now with the pilot shortage. So they they don't do something and then it comes back to bite them down the road. You know, they never think of the second and third order effects. Right. So. uh one of the guys is like, yeah, they're short. No, no. So I'm like, well, when, where's the assignments guy at? And they're like, oh, he, he, you know, he set up shop in this office. So I go up and I say, hey, just out of curiosity, you know, I'm, in the, I'm from the 106 Rescue Unit in New York. Um, uh, I, is there a possibility for me to come on active duty at all? 
And he's like, did, uh, did they pay for you to go to flight school? And I'm like, no, you know, I'm a traditional guard guy. I'm, you know, here's my background. Mm. He's like, just put in a package. If they, if your commander approves it, then I'll, I'll bring you on board. I'll give you two, you know, I'll bring you on board just two year orders for active duty. Mm. So I put in a package and the commander of the guard unit calls me in and one of the problems they have in like a lot of helo units in the guard is guys will try to go to like the air guard or to fighter units or C-17, or, you know, so he was like, are you trying to go to a, a you know, an active, I'm like, no, I'm, I want to go on active duty as a 60 pilot, and, right. you know, and he's, and, you know, he's, and I'm like, it's better for me and it's better for my family. And I'm like, I tell you what, sir, if you give me a full time, job here i'll stay here he's like i can't do that you don't have the right last name you know look in the guard it's all nepotism and i'm not saying it in a pejorative but that's the reality like a guard unit there's uncles cousins and those full-time title 10 agr slots or the tech slots they're pretty coveted and i wasn't you know i would have been the new guy in that unit for 10 years right yeah, the guard. I mean, I spent a little time in a guard, and it 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 can have a clubhouse mentality. Yeah, in and, some and I, I'm not even I'm not even say, like I said. I, I I don't say that with any resentment or sure. or you know negative. It's just the way it is. Right. You know, so I was like, sir, if you give me a full time slot here, I will gladly stay here. You know, he's like, there's no way that's going to happen. There's about five guys ahead of you, and he was a cool guy. So we we talked straight with each other. I said, well. I said, this is just better for me and my family. You know, I'd like to, I like wearing a Zoom bag and I'd like to do this again full time. I mean, I've missed it. Yeah. So I got the two year orders and then about six months into it, <laughs> it you know, look, I'm the king of bad time. And they're like, oh, you've been, a, you've been in 03 for this long. You're up for your majors board. Oh, geez. But I have like no of the Air Force prerequisites done. Right. So, and they're, they're PME or any of that. So I'm scrambling mm-hmm. to get that done and, and wow. not happening. And so I don't get, so I don't get promoted. So now I'm a passed over captain, which now is like the, you know, it's like a scarlet letter. Yeah. I mean, and, um, but then they're like, Hey, we'll give you the bonus if you want to stay. And so the bonus is pretty solid. And I'm like, I'll take the bonus. And, um, and then they go, but, but th- then I didn't think that one through because I didn't realize that they could still kick me out because they don't they they don't have to retain you as a captain for 20. Right. Right. But my boss likes me and he goes, I'll get you retention to 20 as a captain. Are you cool with that? I'm like, yeah, I'm cool with that. So mm-hmm. I signed that paperwork. And so now I'm going to be a permanent captain. Right. So I'm like, okay, whatever, you know, I'll live with that. Um, uh, you know, flying the 60, the combat rescue mission where now we're starting to deploy to, oh, this is 98, 99 timeframe. We're deploying mm-hmm. to operation Southern watch and Northern watch in Turkey, which are real deployments, right? You think they're real, you know, we're flying around armed in Turkey and we're sitting on right. the, we're sitting on the border with Iraq while, you know, all the Northern Watch fighters are flying their, you know, in the vol period over there. And it's kind of cool. And I'm enjoying it. And I'm like, yeah, I can I can do this. I can skate with this for 20, you know, another 
11 years. That'll be cool. The duty stations in the Air Force are good. I'm in Vegas. I can go to Georgia. I can go overseas. You know, it's the duty stations are all pretty cool. There's no really bad places to be stationed. So in my mind, it was, it'll be okay. Well, then 9-11 happens, and that's a whole different ballgame now. Mm-hmm. I mean, 9-11 happens. I'm in Vegas. My brother has worked in the World Trade Center, so I assume he's dead. And, wow. and uh, I'm took me three hours to get in the gate at Nellis Air Force Base. We armed the aircraft, which is pretty crazy. Right, in Vegas. It's pretty yeah. crazy. Um, we're flying like patrols around the base. We're getting briefs about vans coming to blow the Hoover Dam up. We actually sat in on this brief. It's hysterical now that, I mean, back, this is a dead serious brief, Brian. They're saying, we think we've ID'd a van with terrorists and explosives. Here's our plan. We're going to, and this UAVs were just starting then, right? Just yeah. starting, right? They're like, we're going to ID it with a UAV. We're going to have the A-10 strafe it. And then you guys are going to infill security forces. And we're like, I'm looking at my friend and we're like, what What can go wrong here? I'm right. like, some lady and her kids coming back from. Yeah. No visiting yeah, her monster. In I'm, Vegas. I'm like, Golly. we're going to ID a white van on a major interstate. I'm like, come on, man. But. Right. Yeah, there's only I mean, 50 of those. You know, but luckily that never came to fruition. And, and then my bosses at the time, uh, uh, you know, were lobbying hard to again. And again, I got, I got to digress a little bit. When I came over to the Air Force, combat rescue, combat search and rescue, you know, it had this Vietnam legacy, but the, the Air Force didn't give it any love. And when I first came over to the Air Force, helicopter pilots were not, you know, well thought of guys in the Air Force. That's changed. But, I mean, they were usually the guys who didn't do well in flight school. The few guys who picked helicopters literally got counseled by their leadership to not pick helicopters if they had good grades and that it would negatively affect their career. And, I'm, you know, I'm not making this up. I mean, that that that. You can talk to other Yeah, I've heard that as well from other people. Yeah. I'm like, we train, we're training hard, but no one's going to ever, like, we we do red flag and, you know, the fighter guys bingo out. We don't get to do our mission. They're, you know, they don't provide bodies to play the down pilot. I mean, you know, you got like zero love, you know? Right. And then I showed up at my squadron two days after a midair collision that killed 12 people. Right. Mm. And so am I coming from naval aviation? I didn't experience any mishaps in the army. You know, after I left the unit, a couple, unfortunately, a couple of guys were killed. But so I don't know how the army does it. But in the Navy at sea, if you lose an aircraft, you know, you have a memorial, but flight ops continue. Right. So I show up to this unit that just lost 12 guys and the unit just was it was crippled. And it, Mm. it took me like seven months just to finish my my in-unit qualification. That was like a two-week uh-huh. thing, you know, because, and and I saw some poor leadership, you know, uh, uh, Kosovo rolled around and they came to my boss and they said, are you guys ready to go? And he said, no. He said, no, my unit's not ready. 
So I was like, well, he's fired. He'll be gone tomorrow. And all the Air Force guys are like, what do you mean? I'm like, the commander of a unit, his only job is to train and equip his unit to go to war. He just said we can't go. He's done. Yeah. And he never got fired. But that, that just wasn't how the Air Force <laughs> did things, you know? And I'm just like, because yeah. the, the thing about the Navy is it's brutal. Like, I've seen, like, guys thrown off a ship. Like an officer thrown off the ship by the captain, like get off my ship, you know? So that's, think about that. You got now have to find the embassy in a foreign city and report to the military attache and say, I was just thrown off the ship by the captain. Yeah. I mean, you know, and I've been in meetings where like the maintenance officers like, nah, sir, I, I don't think I can provide you that many aircraft this week. And then the commander just goes, you know what? You're not the maintenance officer anymore. You know, yeah. so it's just the Air Force. Yeah, you got to have a lot of empirical data to back you up when you say you can't do something or you're not ready. Right. So so uh, it was a little odd. But and then um, so that that was kind of my initial couple of years, three, four years in the Air Force. And then 9-11 happens. And I, I we just got lucky. You know, we had a new change of command and the two, the commander and the DO, which is the equivalent of the XO, were just both really hard charging dudes. And they they lobbied us to get in the war. and. Uh, we had guys out the door in November of 2002 to Pakistan. And mm. that's how quick we got in it. And then my first deployment, January of 2002, we roll into J- Jacobabad, Pakistan. And um, we were flying missions two, three hours into Afghanistan. And then yeah, we were flying like six, seven hour missions, picking up wounded folks or picking up people just because it was two hours to the border. And then another couple of hours up to Kandahar maybe. And then up. So, and I I mean, we were doing aerial refuel. I mean, it was great. It was, it was, you know, it was crazy. And then um, they told me I had to set up our operations at Kandahar. So uh, I flew up there with a two ship um, and we set up, we showed up the army's like, who the, who the F are you guys? And we're like, we're air force rescue. And they're like, what do you do? We're, we got medevac birds right here. I'm like, yeah, but we're different. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And, you know, we're supposedly, new, the, you know, the guy in charge wasn't me. Uh, he pissed off the colonel there right away by saying, we were told you would offer us all assistance, sir. And so this army mm-hmm. lieutenant colonel's like, go away and never come back. Uh, <laughs> and the, the, it was the rock signs that were there. Um, uh-huh. And uh, the the 06 uh, Colonel Kazuski, whatever, he became a general. I think he became the 101st Division commander at some point, but he was the 06 in charge. And um, th- I I told the other guy to let me try to talk. I said, because being a Marine, I thought I can t- talk a little hua hua, you know. So I went yeah. in and I was really humble. And I was like, hey, sir, I know we got off on the wrong foot. You know, this is my background. And. And I'm like, we could really use your help if you help us out. And this is what we need to set up our ops. We need some comms. You know, we had tents and then we just needed some comms. And, so, I, yeah. you know, and they, they actually ran a field phone to us, like a little, literal, you know, old school with the wire yeah. field phone, yeah. like a quarter mile to our, our little talk that we set up. And uh, he, get, he got me with his uh, logistics guy who happened to be a Puerto Rican dude from New York. So me and him hit it off. So I was able to get our compound set up. And two days later, our first combat mission in Afghanistan 
literally we got launched by a runner. Like some NCO comes running out of breath into our top because he had ran like the half mile from the army top because obviously the wire that we had ran had got broken by the numerous vehicles driving around. Sure. Yeah, no one buried it, so it's just hanging and he, out. And he comes in and he's like, sir, they need you to launch. And that's so we launched. And I'll never forget talking to medevac pilots later. Like he, he's like, yeah, we just saw you guys take off. We didn't even, we had just got the word and we launched and it was, uh, 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 some guys had ran over, a, you know, a, a, a mine in the vehicle and they were still in the minefield and we went and got them. And, uh, that was it. That, that started our career in combat search and rescue. And, and, you know, in the war on global war on terrorism or whatever we want to call it these days. But, uh, yeah. Um, well, you, you highlight something that's important that I, I don't think a lot of people that aren't in the military understand is, you know, orders and, you know, big arrows drawn on maps are one thing, but there's still an element of, of working with people. And, and, you know, it is never clear cut and dry, particularly between all the branches of, you know, you're going to go here and, you know, you're just going to show up and this army unit's going to give you all you need. There, there's still a level of, of give and take and, and relationship building that has to happen. Yeah. And, and the problem is, is if guys, you know, everybody's different on, on the leadership side and, you know, guys are a little institutionalized, you know, like the guy who was in charge of us when we went up there as Academy grad, didn't never really work with the army, didn't understand the mentality of an army airborne, unit like the rock signs you know what i mean and he was told that generals had spoke to generals and right. and this guy was the kind of guy i mean I, I you know i followed his career he was a he just he wasn't a down in the dirt he wasn't gonna, he just pissed the guy off because he came up you know right. we expect this from you you know what right. i mean and, you know my bosses spoke to your bosses and we expect this from you and i'm like that's not going to work with these kind of guys they don't like us mm -hmm. to begin with you know, and you just came in and, you know, basically disrespected them, you know, and and uh, I just was like I, I was able to luckily just because I could. Uh, I could speak army and I could speak marine and I was able to smooth with them along those ways. And I didn't mind that he kicked me in the jimmy a little bit, you know, right. but, you know, he. he and 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 the 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 godsend was the guy he put me in touch with was a guy from New York and we just hit it off you know and didn't grow up too far from each other and and that just lucked out and we were able to get some stuff done but and well, then funny because a lot of the things that you've talked about kind of all culminated in this moment to me like right so you know like you were talking about when you were young you're kind of rough and tumble but you know with that comes some streets and smarts and and how to talk to people oh, yeah. And, but then you've also gone through this this crucible of becoming a Marine officer and in, in the Navy and the Army. So you've also had to humble yourself quite a bit. And so all those things could come into play here where, you know, probably in your mind, you're like, why is this guy giving us a hard time? But the reality is, you know what? I need his help more than he needs mine right now. Well, he's trying to. I mean, look, they had just taken over from the Marines. The perimeter is still active. You know yeah. what I mean? Kandahar was not the Kandahar that. It became a year right. later, you know, I mean, it's. Yeah, you're talking about a very chaotic time still. So. Right. And also, you know, it, it, I know this sounds silly, but it all comes down to if you if you're not an asshole, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? You can get by some of this inner service rivalry, some of this, 
you know, you can talk to people like a regular guy, just, you know, yeah. and, and I, I, I don't know, I'm a, schmo- you know, I've always been a little bit of a schmoozer, you know, and I'm the guy, you know, I, you know, I, I mean, post this, I was the guy that they set up as an advanced party guy everywhere because I, I could wheel and deal and trade and I wasn't above, you know, trading services and trading, you know, our helicopters for this, or, you know, we had a yeah. ad that we had these really nice switchblades. We had boxes of them, you know, and they <laughs> a really cool trading tool. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, those open doors. Yep. So, but it, it, it worked out. It was, it was, it was fun. And then Operation Anaconda kicked off, you know, and um, you, you become a victim of your own success. Like no one knew who we were, what we could do. Then we flew a couple of missions. Operation Anaconda kicked off. Um, I got lots of opinions about Operation Anaconda. You know, just I don't. Sure. I think it was poorly planned, uh, but it was a show. And then we finally got asked to do some stuff, and we did it. You know, we a lot of uh, I. The mission that's the most vivid for me was, you know, my pilot got the silver star and. The rest of us got DFCs was we got asked to go. We were at a FARP and uh, there was some wounded folks and the Apaches getting shot off. And I mean, they're coming back all shot up and the medevac birds are like, we can't get in there. And then it turned dark and they're like, Hey, do you guys want to try? And we're like, yeah, we'll try, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and just, what are you going to say? You, you know, and, uh, we were able to get the guys out. I mean, it was a fiasco of, you know, we got mortared in the LZ. We landed in the wrong LZ. The funniest thing that happened is we landed in this LZ. Cause, uh, you, you remember earlier, the guys had those little flickering lights, those little diamond shaped lights guys would clip onto their zippers or yeah. pockets. Everybody had Fireflies those, everybody. Yeah. And so, you know, the, the 10th mountain guys, they're in straight up gunfights, you know, and, so we're landing in these LZs. Guys are doing the uh, the whipsaw with the chem lights on the end of the street. And, you know, we're landing. And we didn't know this, but the JTAC we were talking to was not co-located with the wounded guys. He was in a talk. So, we, no. so we're trying to find these guys. We landed in the wrong LZ. And these three, three, four GIs jump on the helicopter. And all of a sudden, the PJs are like, Hey, sir, nobody's wounded. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, these guys aren't wounded. They think we're here to exfil. So we're like, well, they got to go. And it was like out of Apocalypse Now. Remember that scene where I was like, I'm not going. I'm not going. My PJs had to manhandle these guys out of the helicopter. (laughs) We felt so bad. And then we... We finally found the right LZ. We had landed in another LZ and got mortared. In, we landed in the LZ, and all of a sudden, they're mortaring us. We're like, well, I guess this isn't the right place, you right. know? And and, and um, we finally landed and got these three guys out, and then we landed at the FARP. I think we had seven minutes of gas left because we stayed looking for them past our bingo. You know, that, I remember that decision. I remember looking, and we were like, yeah, we're, we're not leaving until we find these guys. And I was like, there's another one's nice. I'm like, man, I'm going to die in this hill. On this mountain yeah. in Afghanistan, they're gonna cut my head off. You know, I, mean, yeah. I just remember, I remember that thought because, and uh, before we went on the mission, my flight lead Tom Cahill, uh, unfortunately he's no longer with us. We lost him to his demons, but uh, I remember he calls us. It's like out of a movie. He goes, "Hey guys, they want us to go do this. 
And if we do it, he goes, there's a good chance we're going to be f***ed up. Is somebody have a problem with that? And I remember going, I kind of do have a problem with that. But nobody else said anything. And I'm like, well, I can't say anything. So, you know, and the PJs are like, no, we don't have a problem with that. You know, because they're, they're out of their minds anyway. And I'm just thinking yeah. to myself, I kind of do have a little problem with it, but there's nothing I can do right now. So I just got to go. So you just, your mouth is dry and your stomach's just in knots. And you're mm -hmm. like, I don't know how this is going to end up, but I guess I'm going, you know, and that was, that was my first combat mission, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and um, it was crazy, but that we ended up getting these guys out and, the night before, another flight from our aircraft had gotten some guys out. Same kind of conditions. Uh, theirs was caught on pred porn. So we got to watch that, the, you know, the night, you know, so like literally right before we get our scramble call, we just watched their thing with, you know, RPGs landing five feet from the helicopter and just, you know, right. so, and, um, and, uh, you know, we, we just went out and did it. And an uh, interesting p piece of history, as we were landing at Bagram with the wounded guys, we heard Razor 1 and Razor Zero Two 2 taking off on the radio, you know, mm -hmm. as they were going out on that Roberts Ridge mission. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I remember distinctly, they're like, Razor Zero One, 1, Razor Zero Two, 2 we're on the go. You know, and uh, and my buddy Tom had been a uh, he had transferred over from the army at that time. We had a lot of ex army pilots, and he had been a night. He'd actually been in the one sixtieth before he swapped to the air force. I remember him on the radio going NSDQ to those guys, and them guys going NSDQ to him, and then they mm -hmm. they rolled out, and you know we all know what happened next. And uh, yeah. we traded out our aircraft to another crew. And then we got scrambled the next morning. We're all throwing our clothes on, scrambled. And we're like, wait, we don't have a helicopter, right? And, you know, and then they're like, yeah, we're going up to, we're going back to Kandahar in a 130. And, uh, you know, we're going to be on standby. And my, my buddy was flying and he actually, uh, he actually got within a mile, mile and a half of where the aircraft was down. And he begged them to let him go in and try to extract, exfil some guys and they wouldn't let him do it. Um, at the time, our CA command and control was at the Kayak in Saudi Arabia at the time before it moved to Al-Udeed. And that was literally our, our authority for launching our missions, which subsequently changed to a more localized thing. But that was a real problem because the communications with them was so bad that it, it was very difficult to get them. to. They were very risk averse and it was very yeah. difficult for them to let us do some stuff. It, it, uh, early part of Iraq too, it caused some heartburn and eventually the air force worked it out. But, uh, that was difficult because there was a lot of missions we could have done and done quickly. Had we not had to filter through this kind of cumbersome chain of command, you know? And I was like, sure. we would get really frustrated because we like a captain launches his birds in a medevac unit. Why are we dealing with this crap? Yeah. Oh, and, and yeah. it's really difficult. And uh, that was one of those times. Sorry, we're off with that. Yeah. So for people who maybe don't know, um, and I, you know, the more I think about it, I don't know if I can figure it out myself. What is the difference between combat search and rescue to medevac? I mean, it, to me, the only thing that I that I know of is 
search and rescue guys are, are armed, whereas a medevac bird is not going to be armed. Well, the but main, I mean, what fundamentally is the difference? The main reason we exist is to rescue that downed fighter guy or bomber guy on a mission. In a, yeah. We can operate in a low to medium threat environment, uh, ADA environment. You know, mm-hmm. uh, so if the the principle behind it is is you, you if 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 a bird goes down, let's say a fighter guy goes down in a in a heavily defended or you know ADA environment, then what happens is a, a CSAR task force is created. You have A10s and other 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 bomb droppers that'll go in and hopefully reduce the threat to a medium or low threat. And then we'll go in and, and get the pilot or the crew, whoever, right? Well, then the role expanded because when we first went over there doing that, and they realized no fighters are getting shot down and we're sitting around twirling our thumbs and all these other right. aircraft are going out and doing missions. And especially the, uh, the SOCOM guys were like, you have these aircraft sitting around doing nothing and we could use them. And they were kind of the 800-pound gorilla in the room, you know. Mm-hmm. So they put in a request for forces, and then we started supporting those kind of operations. And then, um, you know, the mission expanded to to Kazavac, Medivac. Uh, you know, it wasn't just downed air crew; it was anything. And then, right. or, and then there was a period where the army couldn't fly in under 20% alone because they were having mm-hmm. so many crashes. So then, because we had a FLIR. We would get every mission on darkening three feet up a cow's, you know what, nights. <laughs> I mean, so we're going out in zero loom and, you know, and, and the thing is, we you become a victim of your own success. We got lucky a few times and we're successful. So now everybody thinks we can do this all the time. So now yeah. we're just getting on. There was a lot of times with, and it's nothing against the medevac crews. They were willing to do it. They just were not allowed to fly. So they right. would be like, well, you guys go. We're like, yeah, I guess we're going. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've taken off in Afghanistan on like a quarter mile visibility. You're just like, this is so dumb. But you yeah. just do it, you know. And, and you, I mean, so many times I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that I'm still here. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, but you just do it and, and you become a victim of your own success. You know, and like I said, the Army – had some really restrictive things for a little while. So then, you know, any medevac in less than 20% of loom, we got called. Then, mm-hmm. of course, there was the fact that we could shoot back. So right. if there was shooting going on in the LZ, they'd be like, oh, let the Air Force guys do it. They got miniguns and they got 50. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, and and that, so that role kind of expanded. Then a few years later, you guys were tapped out. On medevac, so you brought the navy in and us in to do straight medevac, and we were just doing mm-hmm. straight nine lines. But we would just go and shoot it, you know. Right. And and, and um, which I think is good. I mean, that's where a lot of guys got a lot of good experience. And and now the missions kind of shrunk back to that fighter pilot combat. But the the mission of combat search and rescue is to recover isolated personnel in. Mm-hmm. Uh, medium to low threat environments. You know, yeah. it's not just straight med. It's not actually not right. straight medevac nine line. Really, isn't what we're supposed to be doing. But, yeah, you can do it because you've got the the PJs right. that that have all this medical training right. and stuff, but right. not a medevac so, mission. 
And we even did it without PJs. There was a point where the PJs were getting farmed out to do other stuff. They don't like being tied down to just the helicopters. You know, they want to be on, they want to be on, you know, and, and, you know, they, they're attached to all these tier one, tier two units. So they want to be in on that. So for a while, we took those uh, airborne med techs, the, the folks you basically see on like the C-17s and the C-130s flying the wounded back. And we right. put them through some training and then they started flying in, in, in lieu of the PJs for about a six, seven month period. And they did an wow. awesome job. You know, they were, you know, they just they weren't as medically uh, they didn't have as high level, but for the type of work we were doing, the, the you know, the battlefield casual, you know, medevac and Kazadak, they worked out fine, you know. Yeah. And uh, so that's the main difference is, you know, our jo- we're really there to rescue the fighter pilot or the bomber okay. pilot or the bomber crew. And, you know, the, yeah. the ideal rescue mission would be what happened with General Goldfine in Kosovo. You know, mm-hmm. he was shot down or Scott O'Grady, although the Marines pulled that off because he, right. he screwed everything up. But that's a whole other story. But, um, you know, what, what happened with General with uh, General Goldfine was classic combat search and rescue. That's the main re- mission. But the reality is we have a skill set that allows us to do. I mean, there was a couple of times we did some infills and extras with uh, mm. special operations, you know, Luckily, the guys didn't call back and ask mom for permission. You know, they were just a fob and some guy said, hey, we got a bird down. Will you guys infill our guys? And luckily, we had a couple of guys out there who were mediators and were like, yeah, we'll do it. They figured it better ask for forgiveness and say, oh, yeah, by the way, we did this. Then ask. So they did it. And they, you know, they infilled and exfilled some guys on it on the X on some good hits. Yeah. And, um, you know, that makes points with those guys, too. And that's what you want. You you know, credit. Oh, yeah. Thing. So if you can build credibility with those people, then they start asking for you. And the cool thing about SOCOM is they are the 800 pound gorilla in the room. So if they ask for you, generally, they're going to get you. Yeah. And you can call those blue chips in later when when suddenly you're you yeah, know maybe. on the chopping block for something. It's like, hey, remember that time? Yeah. We were bitch boys for the 160th for about two years. We just followed them around on all their hits to be their Kazavak. I mean, their seesaw, right? But the problem was every time something happened, they self-sarred before we ever got there. You know, right. launch and – but what it did is it got us training with them and working with them and building relationships and credibility with them. So, that you know, and, and, those, and also with some of the shooters, you know, some of the – you know, working with some of those guys, you know, and and uh, making some money there, you know, pulling some of those guys out. Because when those guys look you in the eye and say, hey, if it goes south, you'll be there, right? And you say, yeah, yeah. well, and you can't not be there, no matter how bad it is. And right. a couple of times that we were able to go do some stuff like that, you build, you know, we've been mentioned, you know, I, I mean, on a couple of podcasts, a couple of articles by some tier one guys, you know, that's a good feeling. You know, when they say, hey, those guys were there and they came and got us no matter what. That's a really good yeah. deal. So, but that's the basic difference. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't mean to run my, you know, yeah, I'm here. But no, no. That, that's the basic difference. I mean, you know, we, we're, our, our, our reason to etra, so to speak, is to go rescue that downed fighter guy or bomber guy. But the reality is in today's conflicts, there's weight. That's not happening a lot, but there's a lot of other things we can do. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you've got a pretty capable platform, and like you said, the training and and the kind of the bona fides with the different communities. So, so was how many other deployments did you do other than that that first oh, one? I've got, I did another one to Afghanistan, then I did five to Iraq. My last one being in two thousand nine, and uh, I also did one uh, one tour to the Kayak where I was the uh, search and rescue liaison officer, which was horrible, okay. horrible, horrible. I mean, my, I came <laughs> home on emergency leave and that, that saved me. And luckily my wife, you know, my, they thought my wife might've had breast cancer. It turned out it didn't. Mm. So, but it got me out of there and I don't, it was horrible. Uh, it was just really bad. You're, uh, I, I never realized how bad it was to be on a deployment by yourself in the rear with the yeah. gear while your unit is out there in the fight. I don't think there's anything right. that could be worse than that. Yeah. And the, and the chaos. So that's the coalition air operations center. Air so operations the, center. Uh, that's the big brain of all the, all the air. That's you think so. I that's <laughs> realized that that's, it's not always the case, but yeah, the answer. Got, I'm glad I got to see it. Met some really cool sure. people. There, there was a lot of senior folks and you really got to see some good leaders and you got to see some really crappy yeah. And, and um, uh, got to work some things. It's funny, you know, I worked a couple of missions from that thing. And, and it was funny because uh, my boss at the time was not a good leader. Um, was a, I think I was still a captain and he was a major and he uh, he was a jerk. But I worked a couple of missions and uh, the general happened to be over my shoulder while I worked the mission. So when he was scolding me the next morning, the general kind of walked over and was like, what's going on? And he was like, no, he did a great job last night. Clapped me on the shoulder and walked away. So kind of took the wind out of my boss's sails. Cause I, right. we had these operations specialists that were supposed to work the mission, but uh, one of the folks was just not up to par. She didn't understand the terminology. It was just really developing quickly. And I kind of grabbed the radio from her and worked the radio the rest of the night. Probably shouldn't have done it, but yeah. uh, it was a lot going on. It was a pretty big mission and, and it was my unit. So like I knew everybody was flying the mission. So, uh, and uh, the night chaos director, which had to be a one star A-10 guy was, was looking over my shoulder the whole time. So he kind of said, cause I got, got a bit of ass chewing the next day, but, that's okay. That, that, that a bit of an ass chewing. I could uh, end pretty much half my sentences of anything I ever did in the military. So it was yeah, well, a lot of times doing the right thing gets you an ass chewing in the military. That's just the way it is. Yeah. And um, I've done a lot of rug dances. You know, I retired a major as a, for a reason and, and I don't have any regrets. You know, I, uh, yeah. I was never going to be a staff guy. I was never going to work at the Pentagon. I was, I just wanted to stay in a flying unit. And uh, yeah. I was able to navigate that way, and I don't regret it. I, I, uh, you know, I. It's funny, you know, you you read all these books growing up, like Catch Twenty Two, and and all that, and like now when I read Catch Twenty Two, I can equate a person to every one of those characters, a mm. real person, almost. Right. You know, and 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 it was. Um, Listen, the Air Force was a great, the Air Force Combat Search and Rescue was a great mission, great people, really good aircraft, 
And uh, I really loved every minute of it. I mean, I actually loved every minute of my entire career. I mean, I look back on, you know, I'm 10, I'm 10 years retired on the 1st of January. It'll be 10 years since I retired. And uh, I, I still miss it a lot. I had some trouble with my, uh, I had some trouble with my uh, transition. I had a lot of trouble and uh, not, I didn't get dark. I just really had a hard time coming to grips that I wasn't going to do that stuff anymore and caused me some problems job wise or anything, but I've lost a lot of friends and post-military. I'm really heavily into veteran suicide prevention because I've lost some really good friends and, and all of them were top of the food chain guys, which is what freaks me out. They were all the guys mm-hmm. I looked up to in combat guys right. I thought really were great pilots and great leaders and just, uh, and, uh, so that's kind of my post-military thing that I've been doing is trying to really work hard in that arena because I've been lucky. I, like I said, it never got dark for me, but it got weird. I, I just had a really hard time. Honestly, going, I'll never do shit that cool again, and that sucks. Yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> getting older sucks. Yeah. You know, and, and, and but I had a hard time with it. So it was a great gig. I mean, I, I loved every minute of the military. I, I joke I had a – Highly unusual and very undistinguished military career. If I had to grade it, I'd give it a C at best. But I think I made mediocrity look good in a lot of ways. But, man, it was just so lucky to be able to do it, you know? I, yeah, well, I mean, it sounds like you got an A in excitement. I mean, you got to do a lot of different things that – I'm you know, sure you did anything else. I mean, you, you, I mean, you flew Apaches, right? Kai was – Yeah, a little bit. And I mean, Akaya was a badass little bird. I mean, my buddy, uh, <laughs> my buddy was shot down, and him and his co-pilot, female, she ended up writing a book. They had to mm-hmm. ride out on the gun pods of two Kiowas. Yeah. Okay. Basically, strap themselves in, yeah. ride out on the gun pods of two Kiowas. And my, the thing is, the thing that's funny is, I think his co-pilot. The Cav guys really got excited because she was firing her M4 while they were exfilling from the gun pod. Like, and my buddy George, who's like this mellow Hawaiian dude, his story's funny. He had left active duty, joined the guard, was still current and qualified. So they said, Hey, would you go over and fill in for a guy who has to come home for his job for 30 Mm -hmm. days? He's like, yeah, well, he shot down his third day over there. (laughs) Jesus. <laughs> and he said he so was this in 2009 uh yeah yeah because yeah, okay yeah that's that, so uh, uh just a couple episodes ago we had uh, a guy from uh, that unit the is that the 106 yeah 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 and i was deployed when that happened yeah so we we kind of talked about that a little bit i think it was the 129th no he was in the 129th out of, out of moffitt in california but there oh, might okay. have been some 106. But yeah, so <laughs> yeah, that was my squadron that picked those dudes up. Yeah, he said that she's shooting her M4, and he said he did something wrong with his because we have these little go bags and everything, you know, that we grab, and something happened, and it was in the slipstream. He said it was choking him out, and <laughs> he tried not to pass out. Yeah, uh, she ended up writing a book and running for Congress in Texas or something, um, and. Uh, I read part of the book. She hammered the wingman for not coming to get him, I guess. 
<laughs> I guess he said he didn't have enough gas or he could only take the back enders. And so they had to ride out. But, but yeah, I, I, matter of fact, I remember speaking to him on the phone because I was in Balad in Iraq. And he called me. And I'm like, hey, dude, who was shot down on the – you know, I'm like, George, what's up? Who was shot down? He goes, that was me. I'm like, what? Thought you only did wow. told me the story. Oh, I, uh, I I know the guys who picked them up, so we're going to have to link these dudes up on the show. And, and oh, have yeah, them. that'd be great, man. Yeah. So that's such a cool story. Like, I, I mean, oh, you know, yeah. so the – the Kai, I think the Kai was a cool plus. I just, I, I, uh, I still love the way they just zip around. You know, yeah. I, 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 I kind of wish I'd have hitched a ride on one for a mission and just say, <laughs> hey, can I just fly with you guys and just check it out? Because I always like watching the videos on YouTube when I see them chasing yeah. that out on a motorcycle. The Aussies love the Kiowas because, you know, we could shoot out the door, shoot our M4 at stuff. And it was like an, an actual approved thing. You know, it wasn't like somebody just did it to be crazy. Like it was something we actually trained to do. And they, they enjoyed that about us. So, yeah, man, I just used to see you guys in the farm. I'd be like, man, those guys, I was like, they, they fly all day. Well, I mean, there's so much going on. Like in Iraq, I used to love that, like, if anything happened, I could just get on the Hilo Common and just give a grid. Yeah. Runs galore over there in like five minutes. Oh yeah, everybody's waiting for somebody to call up with something. Yeah, yeah. So it would just be like, you know, I was like, you know, like if you just say, hey, this is where I am, and like every Kiowa and Apache and Cobra and everybody's just gonna head over there, hoping to shoot something. Yeah. So that that was kind of cool. I used to love that. Yeah, it's like six year olds playing soccer. Everyone's running towards the ball. So. Well, I mean, yeah. I remember uh, we. I still talk about this with my friend. One night we were coming back to Balad, and um, so the two Apaches crossed the fence, and we just happened to see some tracers come up. And I told mm-hmm. them, and they're like, "We're Winchester, and we're we're Bingo. We got to go to the far." They were really pissed. They're like, "What? God!" So I'm like, "We had we had our fifties, and we and I remember just talking to flight lead. We're like, "Let's go over there and see if they'll shoot at us, and then we can light them up, you know." And and just when I think about yeah. that now. How crazy right. like it is to go somewhere and hope someone shoots you. You know, it's just yep. the, the mental mindset you're in. You know, and I remember that uh, the uh, one of the gunners, Smitty, uh, we lost him and he was shot down um, in 2010. But I remember him getting on the radio and going, "Sir, confirm we're going over there to see if they'll shoot at us." Like, yeah, it's yeah. crazy talk. <laughs> yeah, I remember being. Uh, we thought there was a dishka, and I'm like, okay. I'm going to dive in on this guy and try to get him to shoot at me. And you guys like find him, you know, and, and I look back now, I'm like, that was dumb, but you, you do that. Just that's what you do. You know, yeah, it's, it's, Weird. it's crazy. It, it, I mean, just the stuff, you know, I, I mean, people ask me now, you know, it's funny cause you no know, people ask you, you know, you tell them you're in the war and they automatically go, what was it horrible? And I'm like, well, actually I kind of loved every minute of it, you know, and yeah, I fun. used to have a hard time. One of the things I had a problem with was admitting that I liked it, you know? Yeah. And then finally I just said, yeah, I liked it. I like yeah. being over there. I like doing the job. I like, and and then that helped actually helped me because I used to be, I don't want to say embarrassed, but it just, you know, I, my thing was, no, I miss it. I miss, I miss it every day. And then people look at you like you got a third eye in the middle of your head. Like, right. I was, I was actually talking to my dad about this the other day and I, and I told him that and I said, you know, 
it, I guess for being deployed, it's just this sort of pure lifestyle because Simple. there's not a whole lot of decisions that you got to make. Like someone's already making your food for you. You know, someone's already made your schedule for you for the day. You just have to sleep, figure out what movies you want to watch when you're hanging out and then just go to work. You know, and it's simple. It's it's exactly oh. it, it's simple. And what's your bucket list? Don't get killed. You know, I mean, right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so right. You know, your wife called the the machines on the washing machine broke down. OK, there's money in the bank. Nothing I can do. Sorry. It sucks to be you, but nothing I can do about yeah. it. You know, and that breeds its own problems. But, you know, I mean, uh, it, it's just this simple. I, I used to joke if I didn't have a family and I said, if I didn't have a family and you can guarantee me that I could get laid once a week, I probably wouldn't want to come home. You know, I mean, it, it's it's just. Yeah, there's only a few creature comforts that are missing from deployment. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, that's because, and, and, and it's it's so weird. The simplicity of it. Is, is so – I never realized that that was so appealing. Like you're right. What do you do? You wake up, you eat, you work out. What movie are you going to watch? And go try and go do the job and try not to get killed. And that's it. And But there's something – and I think it's – I think my theory is why so many guys have problems and why we lose so many guys is like missing that is hard to articulate. Yeah. And when you leave the military, you know, everybody thinks there's a veteran around every corner and there really isn't. And um, you don't have anyone to express that to. That's why I'm in a couple of organizations. Uh, I, I, I organize one of those irreverent warriors, silky hikes. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They kind of happen all mm -hmm. over the country. Everybody wears their little PT shorts, combat boots and, Hikes, uh, 22 clicks to represent the 22 a day. I organized the first one in Vegas uh, okay. here last month in December. And part of a group called Merging Vets and Players. Uh, Jay Glazer and Nate Boyer figured out that athletes and military guys have a lot of the same problems when they leave their respective professions. So you meet, we meet once a week, work out, uh, MMA, uh, have an MMA workout, and then have a what we call a huddle where guys just sit around and talk and, and, um, you know, just being able to talk to folks with those similar experiences is I think a big deal. Cause I think that's where people run into problem is they just feel isolated because then no one gets it unless their family was in the military, uh, you know, or there's another veteran or someone they can talk to. I, I, th I think that's where we lose a lot of guys. That's my opinion. Yeah. I'm not a professional by any means, but just admit, no, I, that makes sense. Missing that, I, I don't, you know, and then, and then, you know, it's funny, like, then I started talking to like World War II guys, Korea, Vietnam guys, they all feel this. It's not like it's unique to us, you know? No. I mean, I got, you know, I've, I've always been a World War II buff, especially World War II planes. Like I said, I, I just think like being a fighter pilot in England, you know, how cool, it just seems cool to me, like. You fly your P-51 or P-38 over Europe. You fly some missions. You come back, go out drinking, meet a pretty girl. I mean, and if you're 23 years old, how is life better? Yeah. You know, and, yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, being over there, and I was a little older, you know, I didn't go to combat till I was 40. But, mm. uh, 
I just remember going like, this is really, I remember so many times going, I don't think I'd rather be any place in the world. Knowing I had a family, knowing I had kids, knowing, I just was like, I don't think I'd rather be anywhere but here right now. And, but you, we're, I think we wrestle with ourselves with that because we're taught that that's not supposed to be the way you're supposed to think. But I think in reality, it's kind of the natural way to think. And I also am one of these guys, I think, I think there's a warrior's path. You know, I know it sounds cliche and we hear that word a lot, but I think, I don't think I was meant to do anything else. Right. And, you know, a lot of guys come from military families. It's the family business. It wasn't the family business. There was nothing in my life that would expose me to it. So why did mm -hmm. I want to do it so much? You, you, that's right. always kind of like a mystery to me. You know, mm -hmm. if anything, I come from a background that should discourage that. You know, but it just, it was like, so I kind of think sometimes maybe it's a life path, not to get deep, but I. Yeah. Some sort of destiny, you know. You know, and, and it, it was just a fun, I just can't, you know, I can't believe they paid me sometimes. I, I know you feel it. Yeah. I know you're still doing oh, yeah. it and you're still dealing with a lot of the crap that the military can throw your way. And we all know that the military can be uber annoying, you know, and no common sense, but. Uh, you'll miss it. I, I know you, I can tell you right now you'll miss it. And I can tell you that the best thing you can do is start thinking about what life you want to do that you'll enjoy. That'll give you, it'll never be as cool, but that you'll still feel like, you know, you have a purpose in life. Yeah, yeah exactly. Purpose is what it's all about. And, and, it's and that's the, what, that's what you were getting out of what you were doing. Yeah. And, and, and it's the camaraderie, you know, there's a, there's a, you know, look, we don't all love each other in the military. You don't love every guy in your unit. You know, let's be honest. There's guys we don't, but you're all willing to die for each other. You're willing to risk your life for a guy that you generally don't like that much. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's a weird thing, man. It's a weird, yeah. crazy, heady thing, you know, And or you're willing to risk your life for a guy you don't. You, I mean, look what you did. You know, you're a fire support guy. Hey. Troops in contact, boom, you're going out. You don't know any of these guys. You may never meet them, but you're not going to leave them out there to, to hang out to dry. You know, you'll stay out there till you're Winchester and Bingo, and you'll run back, refuel, and come right back out there. You know, yeah. and, and it's the same. You just, you're not going to find, you know, and you don't find that out here. You know, you, you look, look at what we're going through here with COVID. I mean, you find out people generally don't really give a shit about each other. So you kind of, you kind of miss that. Yeah. So you said you retired about 10 years ago. What are you, what are you doing now? All right. So I've been flying EMS on and off since I retired. Uh, I went through a few companies, mainly my own fault. You know, I, I, I was, I, I was kind of an asshole when I first retired uh, <laughs> and um, needed to work on my interpersonal skills, maybe <laughs> a little bit. Um, and um uh, got very lucky about four years ago. Uh, I had an opportunity to uh, to do some safety consulting and something called military flight operations quality assurance. Honestly, it's just taking data from flight data recording systems and correlating it to uh, various maneuvers and events to see if they are precursors to mishaps. Long story short, mm -hmm. they pay me a lot of money to create a PowerPoint every month. And, uh, 
and I and it's it's I keep waiting to get fired because I work with these really smart and like the other pilots are all code writers and engineers and and I'm I'm just yeah. a, and I keep literally every day I'm like these guys are gonna figure out I'm a dumbass and fire me and they're every <laughs> they're like hey this is a really good product we like it and good job and I'm like literally and I'm not making it up I'm shocked that I'm because I work with yeah. so much smarter and they're all so much better at using statistics and data. I just keep it simple. I'm like, okay, this happened this many times. How many times does the total ver I try to keep it really simple, you know, and, and, and I don't, somehow these bosses think I'm doing an okay job. So until they figure out I'm a dummy, I'm going to run with it. And then, um, right. I just decided I've, I've always been a, I've always been a movie freak from the longest time. Uh, during my seven years break in service, when I was flying in the Guard Reserve, I started studying acting, taking classes, and then, uh, you know, put that on the back burner when I came back on active duty. And then, uh, I don't know, about six years ago, I'm like, you know what, I think I want to try this and started taking some classes and uh, got lucky. Um, got, got, I can point you to a couple of movies I'm in if you have Amazon Prime <laughs> and uh, and uh and I uh, got lucky last year and did an episode of uh, NBC's New Amsterdam as a guest star. And uh, cool. COVID happened. Obviously, that all dried up. Now things are picking up again. So I'm just trying to see if I can get hoping to get to a point before I get too old where I can make a living as an actor. But if not, I'll fly until somebody says yeah. I don't fly anymore. No, that's cool. I mean, you got you to gotta live the one life you got and try and, try yeah, and do I'm a, what you want to do yeah. with it. So. I mean, I, again, I'm a pretty cliche guy. Like I'm not a, I'm not really a, you know, I, I, the, you know, the one thing about being in aviation for 35 years is you know that life can be short and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you want to, you want to, you want to do that, you know, follow your dreams, no matter how silly they are. You know, you want to be an artist, be an artist. You want to be a brain surgeon, be a brain surgeon, you know, just do mm-hmm. it. People, everybody told me I'd never be a pilot, never be a Marine. If I listen to other people, I'd probably be getting close to 60 years regretting a lot of things. And the one cool thing is I don't have a huge amount of regret. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, I mean, I think we could probably talk for for hours more, but definitely have to wrap it up. But uh, I I really enjoyed, you know, kind of hearing your your story. I mean, that's uh, an incredible career. And uh, honestly, it's not even over, really. I mean, it's... I appreciate you having me on. Uh, I, I love podcasts. I lo- I'm really into them now. I listen to about five or six different ones. And I, I just really appreciate the opportunity to tell my story, to be honest with you. Especially, you know, on the rotary wing side. I'm excited to listen to a podcast that kind of focuses on the rotor, rotary side. You know, I listen to the Fighter Pilot podcast and the Afterburn podcast. And they try yeah. to do Helos justice, but, you know, they're stiff wing guys, so I I, I like to. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm I'm looking forward to it from the from the helo driver perspective. So as I was listening to his story, I mean, it just struck me that, um, you know, he from from start to finish, he kind of had a goal. He knew he wanted to fly his entire life. Uh, ended up, you know, with a couple distractions along the way, but uh, opportunities present themselves. And regardless of, uh, you know, where you find yourself, 
take advantage of those opportunities. So, you know, he was a Marine and then went uh, Army Guard. And then I think he went to the Air Force. I can't remember if I got the order exactly right. Um, But he had a a story to tell from each one of those and uh, a lot of the culture. So he really kind of, I think, learned a lot from each of the different cultures um, and how they approach things. I'll, I'll kind of bite my tongue a little bit when he was talking about the Air Force because <laughs> he, he kind of uh, proved uh, proved a, a commonly held perception of the Air Force uh, compared to the other <laughs> compared to the other <laughs> services and the work ethic or the the environment they they keep themselves in. But yeah, that I, I mean I. You know, I, I don't know how long he was in. I guess he did 20 years uh, in a mix of yeah. um, active duty and guard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, talk about a guy who a lot of a lot of doors opened at, at different times. And I thought that was fascinating, kind of bouncing around between the, the active and the guard and, and reserve and everything. Just a, a wild career path and, and really just kind of showing, uh, you know, opportunity knocks in different ways uh taking his experience growing up and and kind of having to change who he was to to get into the marines and then uh again opportunity knocking with the uh the navy and i'm, I'm glad that he was able to take that you know make that leap and, and make that work out for him so uh it's a fascinating story i hope you guys enjoyed it and uh if you're enjoying this show you know you can do me a, a favor and just like and leave some comments so wherever you're listening it's probably got some sort of method by which you know you can you know, put down some stars or leave a comment or a thumbs up or, you know, whatever, whatever, uh, medium they use. But if you could do that for me, it would be, uh, super helpful, uh, helps the, uh, the show grow and, and get its word out to everyone else out there. So we're, we're seeing some massive growth here in the past, uh, really the past week. And if you want to support the channel, of course, you can also check out our Patreon, check out our Facebook page, our Instagram and our website, the lowlevelhellpodcast.com has got links to all those places. If you have any questions, you can send them to us at questions at the com. There's also a link on our website you can send us to there, and we'll get back to you as soon as we can. And, of course, if you want to support the channel financially, you can take a look at our Patreon page. And I do want to say thanks to a couple new patrons who have joined us since the last time. I want to say uh, thanks to our new crew chiefs, Cam Flip and Brandon Pye. It goes by Sundown. Appreciate you guys. And our two new mission pilots, Louis Steele and Jeff H., so, of course, the mission pilots, uh, all those guys will get access, early access to the episodes. We try to get those pushed out about three days prior to the the full release. And uh, basically, it's got a link that you can click on. It'll take you to wherever you listen to podcasts. Got a, like an RSS cheat code, I guess you will, and you'll get access to the show there. But also for our mission pilots and our flight leads, they'll also get access to some bonus material. So that's me spending a little bit of extra time with the guests and getting them to tell me a good war story and... Uh, yeah, we just kind of throw that up there. It's another 20 or 30 minutes, so it's kind of a, a mini show for those guys. So I appreciate all their support. appreciate you guys listening. Comments made by the guests and hosts are their own or do not represent the Department of Defense or any private business. I appreciate all you guys listening. We'll talk to you guys in two weeks. Take care. We are in Tarrant which had this dirt runway, you know, and we're flying missions and, and, and getting shot at and stuff. And, and one day we're sitting there and uh, one of my platoon leaders, he says, man, I wish we had one of those Panini machines like they have down in Kandahar. <laughs> and I was just like, can you imagine 
the the guys in Bastogne in World War II, if they could travel through time and hear us sitting here in you know quote unquote war, wishing we had a panini well, machine. We had a current. <laughs> you know, we had currents and <laughs> and and I mean, watching movie. Yeah, no, it's it's true though. It's like that. It, it was so. I remember being in the Green Bean and like these British SAS guys walked in. You know, and they're yeah. all jocked up and you know. And you're standing there, and they're just like, can I have a – or I've been there when the brief, the mass brief in Turkey would end for the vault. And you got everybody in G-suits and flight suits in line. Can I have a latte, ice cap? And you're just like, you can't make this shit up. Yeah. Or the chow yeah, hall was – the chow hall was my favorite when they'd have theme day. Like I walked in the chow hall yeah, at Cinco de Mayo. <laughs> and these TCNs yep. are wearing sombreros, and, and I'm like, dude. You, it's like you cannot make this up, and yeah. you cannot make this up. And if you try to explain it to someone, they're not going to get it. Only someone who's been here is going to get that. Like, yeah, it, you know, yeah, the absurdity of it. <laughs>